Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, August 24th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Well, here is a trend spurred on by the Trump presidency. Word puzzles. But you didn't think that'd be it. University of California Berkeley energy professor resigned Wednesday from his position at the State Department, a science envoy. And he did so in fine fettle, Daniel Kamen included in his resignation letter the words impeach as spelled out by the first letters of every paragraph. Kamen clarified that he's a scientist, might not be sure about the ins and outs of impeachment, but he just doesn't like this guy. Now, before that, uh, last Friday, the remaining 16 members of the President's Committee on Arts and the Humanity resigned in protest. Cal Penn uh, from Harold and Kumar, who I found out his first name is Cal Penn. His full name is Cal Penn Modi, but he goes by Cal Penn. That's kind of cool. Anyway, resigns. And uh, here's the first paragraph of that or the first sentence of that resignation letter. Reproach and censure in the strongest possible terms are necessary following your support of the hate groups and terrorists who killed and injured fellow Americans in Charlottesville. Now, these are artists and humanitarians. So you might ask yourself, why are they phrasing their first sentence in the passive voice? Oh, it's to get to a place because as you read on, as you read the penultimate sentence, supremacy, discrimination, and vitriol are not American values. Thank you. And then they list the names of the resignees. And those letters, the first letters of every paragraph spelled out, resist. Huh? You get it? You thought the ethicists Richard Painter and Norm Eisen were going to bring down the president? No. Maybe it would be special prosecutor Robert Mueller? Uh Uh-uh. It's puzzle master Will Shorts. For our puzzle today, take a letter in the phrase emoluments clause, rearrange it, and sell it to the Saudis for eight times the cost. Uh, We got 200 postcards that all had the answer, lace us mom eel snot. And so who are you playing with? On the show today, I spiel about statues. And I come down on them, maybe not all coming down. But first, the question of sexual assault on college campus is a point of debate, contention, and federal decree. One journalist put together a comprehensive look at the problem, the solutions, and the redefinition of crime for good and ill. Sexual assault on college campuses. The issue has been called everything from an epidemic to a moral panic to a witch hunt. My guest, Vanessa Gregoriadis, is out with a new book where she plums the depths of this subject. It is called Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. Thank you for coming in, Vanessa. Hello, how are you? Do we know, am I right, we pretty much know about mattress girl Emma Sulkowitz because of you? 
Um, I put her on the cover of New York Magazine, yes. She didn't thank me for that, but I did do it. She, the way you describe her, she comes across as uh, serious of purpose, but whenever you said something she disagreed with, as a journalist, pressing a subject must, she got a little uh, defensive and oppositional. Yeah, I mean, I think she's one of these people who's very convinced that what she's doing is right. She's a very smart girl, and she's a very rational person. You know, she wanted to be a physics major before this whole mattress thing happened. So, I don't know. I mean, her case is, is you know, obviously a lot of people listening to this do not believe her, right? I mean, I yeah. would say America is split on all things, including mattress girl. Yes, but how anyone can have an informed opinion on the exact allegations of the case, which is that she had sex with a guy she was quasi-seeing, or at least in an established sexual relationship with, that they had oral sex and vaginal sex. But when it came to the anal sex, that she says she didn't want, he says that she did. How anyone could have an informed opinion on that is kind of bizarre. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, for months and months, that's all anybody would talk about, right? When you went to a cocktail party, it was like, oh my God, can you believe this? And then I think that the people who take issue with her, with, with her allegations, first of all, only know about the allegations because of her tactics, but they point to the tactics. They point to the fact that she carried around a mattress, so made herself as a martyr. Use that mattress as part of her um, thesis. Uh, You know, she was making an art project. And then in subsequent art projects, really challenging, I think, to the perhaps norms of middle America. She did have a performance where she created a robot of herself and then she stood on a plot form next to the robot and she refused to answer any questions about the mattress. So if you asked her a question about the mattress, you had to go talk to the robot, which had pre, you know, canned answers. I mean, it's kind of a genius idea in some ways because she, you know, her whole thing is about subjectivity. Like, I felt raped by this guy. Okay, who are you to tell me that I didn't feel that way? My feelings are are factual, right? Like in this country, we all understand this concept now, right? Feelings are factual. And that's what a lot of girls in college are arguing. They're arguing, if I feel violated, then I am violated. That is really the kind of, you know, feminist take on this. Do you think that just tactically, if that's the ground that the people who are um, adhering or advocating for that line, if that's the ground that it's fought on, they're going to advance their agenda? Like, let's have this debate over if my feelings should get a kid expelled. Mm -hmm. First of all, the the feelings thing is definitely about stuff that's on the margins. We do have surveys that are showing something along the lines of one in seven to one in 14 women in college are experiencing the thing that all Americans understand to be rape. I'm glad you said that because there are organizations called one in four, right? Mm-hmm. Which which seeks to up the number sure. by having such an expansive definition of rape as to include things that, you know, are maybe untoward, but not rape. Sure. Like all advocacy groups, they want to make it sound like this is happening to everybody. And you know what? Like the fact is, is like college sex very often includes sexual assault. Let's think about this in terms of ethics and sexual misconduct, plagiarism, whatever. This is about acting ethically to your fellow student. It seems like the campus courts are only a blunt blunt instrument. Maybe they can't be anything else. I don't know. Maybe they can. But 
I don't see decisions of you are convicted of sexual unethical behavior. I see you're thrown out of school for sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, because it says sexual in front of it. Then everybody's completely freaked out and it goes down on your transcript and says discipline for sexual misconduct and you'll never get like into graduate school. Right. Because, again, Americans are so insane about sex that like they don't hear like, oh, this is just something he did one night because he was uneducated about new consent norms like they hear like you're a sexual predator and have to live 500 feet away from a school for the rest of your life. I do not see the activists behind one in four and the campus feminists and your mattress carrying demographics signing off on the let's define some version of sexual assault as a misdemeanor. Oh, no, absolutely not. They'll be like on the phone to their media contacts in a second saying like, you know, whatever, Texas A&M does not punish rape, you know, gives whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, we're yeah, definitely. We are recognizing this real problem. There's this realization that empirically there is more sexual assault on campus. This happened at the same time that there's been a rise in, you know, sociology inflected terms and frames of thinking like rape culture and and ways of uh, regarding sexual assault as not just a crime, but a way to think about man-women dynamics. Do you think the fact that those two things happen simultaneously is a coincidence? Not at all. I mean, I think that, you know, Obama in 2011, when he decided to largely re make this system was coinciding with, you know, a time when the kind of feminist agenda amongst mainstream women's media from Jezebel to Bustle to Cosmo. I mean, you cannot read Cosmo today and not find radical feminist thought in it. That's never happened before. That's the first time, right? You know, we're still in an incredibly radical time. And we're like this weird split country now, and particularly on campus, where like frat and sorority membership is up by 50% across the country over the last decade. Like when I was at Syracuse, one sorority that I interviewed a lot of girls at was had the biggest pledge class that they'd ever have in their history. And at the same time, Syracuse was having like an 18-day sit-in about transphobia and xenophobia at the exact same time, which You're also... You're saying the didn't participate in that? <laughs> couple. There's always a couple in each sorority who's yeah. like, you know, going yeah. over to the other side. But I mean, this is, you know, this is, it's fascinating where we are right now. In the book, you say that you reviewed, and this is just essentially prosecutor or defense attorney's briefs, reviewed a hundred or so boys who you know, write about what happened and essentially are arguing that they were unfairly kicked out of school. And mostly with the caveat, you just read their side, you found it compelling and convincing. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, again, the caveat is this is just their side. So yeah. in a lot of these cases, these cases, they always happen in September. They always happen at the beginning of school. They're between two people who don't really know each other, but they might have been texting earlier right. in the day. Right. They and might have another, matched on Tinder. This is an important part of your book that like in the beginning of the school year, kids, freshmen have yet to find their tribes. Uh, the girls can easily be plucked off the herd by either knowing or just uh, people who've backed into or men who've backed into some sort of predatory Right, but yeah. I mean, the the bigger point is, is that, you know, people are connecting through social media in a way that's like incredibly like kind of sexualized texts with each other or even something like Tinder. You know, there's a trail of 
really, really condemnatory material that, like, any defense attorney can pull from. So here in America, we have Obama with their dear colleague Title IX letter. And on the other side, you have Betsy DeVos and, you know, the campaign to exonerate falsely accused boys. I really wonder if thesis and antithesis will possibly yield synthesis. It just seems okay. very much okay. to be Wait. two different groups okay. Here totally you go. arguing with Here each you other. Go. Here, here's my takeaway, and it's a positive one. Mm-hmm. It's already happening on campuses because almost every American campus has this yes means yes law, right? So your takeaway from years of reporting and going to college <laughs> campuses and cavorting with the sororities of Syracuse, which are a special kind of sorority, yeah. is that things are getting better. We're going to argue about this for a while, and it will be a flashpoint in the culture wars. But mm-hmm. actually on campus, they'll be better, more ethical, less abusive sex. I, I, I 100% think that. I think things have radically changed in the last five years. I think yes means yes is being taken seriously. You know, all these girls speaking up who really were kind of brave to actually go out there, put the real names on their stories, which is something that like, you know, even then in the 90s, when everybody kind of was talking about sexual assault before Katie Royfe came and like stamped out the movement, like even in the 90s, girls didn't really put their names on it. They'd be like, Brenda. Other than Emma Solkowitz's story, the two most high profile stories about rape were the UVA rape that was retracted by Rolling Stone and the Duke lacrosse case that kind of predates some of the uh, some of the time period we're talking about. So both of those were either false accusations or exonerated. The accused were exonerated. What's your assessment of that? If if the false accusal rates are really between two those and eight percent, really, really the exceptions. I mean, they, but, they, but the they, fact that's that they really were false. the most look before we thought the UVA case when there was a lot of buzz on the UVA case. The buzz wasn't immediately. Oh, this is fake. There was definitely not. Yeah, no, there was so it, much buzz on it, and people were rioting on the UVA campus about yeah. like how the administration could have allowed this to happen. No, right. I mean there is a lot of coverage of rape on campus, but the fact is there's a lot more coverage of fake rape on campus mm-hmm. because Americans love the fake rape story. We really like that. We like to say this doesn't really happen. But both you know? those stories uh, got, I would say, bigger play than any other story before we knew it was fake rape. Mm-hmm. The Duke story and the UVA story. Well, they were big stories. It could because just be bad luck. In, well, I mean, hmm, first of all, Southern campuses being revealed as hotbeds of misogyny and like predatory sexual behavior. You know, that's a great story too, right? Duke lacrosse privileged. The you, I mean, the UVA story in Rolling Stone was like, I mean, hugely graphic. Seven guys were penetrating her. One with a beer bottle. The glass table shattered beneath her. She ran shoe from the room yes. at 3 a.m. And I mean, she painted quite a picture. So yeah, like the fact is, is that I'm not so, I'm not going to do so well with my picture of like a couple guys fingered a passed out girl on a couch. Right. That's not too exciting, right? So not too good, much drama there. That's a good, uh, that's a good theory. The reason that they got so much attention is because they seem so unbelievable. And the reason they seemed unbelievable is that they were, they unbelievable, were unbelievable. Whereas the, right, yeah. whereas the real rapes that happen or the real assaults are sure. more. Like gang rape mm-hmm. really, really most often happens with a girl who's underage, who's mentally messed up, like the Glen Ridge, the famous Glen Ridge rape case, or who is passed out. You know, I'm not saying it doesn't ever happen. It obviously happens with a lot of football guys, you know, like the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers cases, like this case we see all the time where there's a girl and maybe she's going to have consensual sex with the guy who's a football player, but you don't want to have sex with his five friends. And suddenly his five friends are coming in the room, right? 
So, I mean, I think you see a lot of things like that, but we have to be honest that, like, you know, they're not, they're, there's not that much premeditation going on here. There's not a frat pledge ritual, which is what was happening in the UVA case. In the book, you also are pretty frank of just saying, stop it with the don't tell us not to drink. Stop it with the don't give us, the women, any tools to try to get out of these situations. Let's be practical. Don't get blotto drunk and maybe do a couple things to remove yourself from harmful situations if the goal is not to be assaulted. But do you think that all the attention paid to the activists saying, how dare you tell us not to drink, do you think that's been overblown? Uh, do they really say that? No, that because... <laughs> Well, I don't know if they they say that that much in campus, but they definitely say that in the media, right? Because we all know it's not don't get raped, it's don't rape. And that's, that's the message. Men do not rape. But the secret that anybody who works in this area knows is it's really hard to tell men not to rape when you're doing an orientation seminar. And also the thing that was always preached to me when I was in school, rape's not about sex, it's about power. It seems like a lot of times about really bad sex. No, it's, it's about, about sex. sex. Yep. It's about it's about both. I mean, yep. that's, the, that's the truth, right? It's about both. I don't think anybody says that anymore. Like, I think we all have come to the realization that this is about sexual standards, consensual and not, right? But, I mean, I think, like, I'm really sad that self-defense is kind of out of vogue. You know, like, it almost doesn't make any sense because you were in this incredible sex positive moment where girls who are in college are really like saying like I feel powerful and I'll wear whatever I want and they're not that interested in learning self-defense you know and we know that self-defense aggressively asserting yourself we know that that is part of what stops guys blurred lines rethinking sex power and consent on campus a deeply reported book an optimistic book and also most of the people profiled get compared to a famous actor or actress <laughs> Absolutely. so thank you for that <laughs> thank you vanessa gregoriatis thank you vanessa <laughs> you're welcome thank you and now the spiel yesterday in new york city my city there was a mayoral debate the Democratic primary, Bill de Blasio, has one opponent, a Mr. Sal Albanese. Albanese came in third in the Democratic primary of 1997 behind Ruth Messenger and Al Sharpton. Last time, he came in eighth in a nine-person field. Sal Albanese got 5,000 votes in this overwhelmingly Democratic city of 8 million people, but he's trying it again. He hopes that now that he's in a two-man field, he could at least crack the top five. Sal Albanese, son of Calabria, actually born in Calabria, Bill de Blasio, has grandparents from Grassano, which is a town in Matera, and Benevento. And so Albanese and de Blasio took on the issue of Cristoforo Colombo. Colombo, some say he has got to go, and not just Ferdinand and Isabella. Mayor de Blasio also refused to comment on the council speaker's suggestion to consider removing Columbus from Columbus Circle. He's leaving it up to a soon-to-be-named commission. The city council speaker, Melissa Mark Viverito, is considering taking down the Columbus statue. And that's not the only statue or monument that might be targeted. A spokesperson for Viverito says she also thinks that Grant's tomb should be on the review list. I asked the mayor about Grant because he's regarded by some as anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitic? What? 
I thought I had heard all the accusation of everyone who's ever been really thinly accused of being anti-Semitic. Spike Lee, Shakespeare, I think one of the Darrens from Bewitched, Fred Flintstone. Think about it. Mr. Slate's clearly a Jew. Fred's a working man, hates his boss. Anyway, the charge against U.S. Grant was that he issued a particularly broad order expelling Jews engaged in the cotton trade, the illegal cotton trade during the Civil War. He didn't specify those cotton trading Jews. He just said Jews. So yes, it was overly broad. And that is why Abraham Lincoln rescinded the order. On the other hand, Grant had Jewish officers who served under him, who loved him. In 1874, as president, Grant and all the members of his cabinet attended the opening of a synagogue. It was the first time an American president ever attended a synagogue service. The author of When General Grant Expelled the Jews says that as President Grant became one of the greatest friends of Jews in American history. Oh, and by the way, let's not forget that those specific Jewish peddlers who engaged in trading cotton illegally, they were propping up slavery. Furthermore, Grant, you know, he was the best general on the Union side because he was so good. He probably saved like, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of lives. Anyway, let's take it all into account. And I shall come out on the side of Grant's tomb, staying Grant's tomb. Okay, on to Columbus. First, before we consider the issue of taking down a statue of Columbus, before we consider it full of sobriety and full of information, let us first consider the idiot's take. Can't leave the idiots out. This is Fox Business News' Trish Reagan on the overall issue of statue removal. At what point does it stop? At what point does it end? Presidential historian Doug Weed joins me right now. And I did to tell you, Doug, you know what? I'd never thought, never even, you know, I grew up in, in the north in New Hampshire. I never really thought about the Confederate statues up until, gosh, a few days ago. I question why it is that I'm thinking about this so much as I have been the last few days. I don't think it's a coincidence, sir. Arrgh, you made me think. I grew up in New Hampshire as a white person, and now you're making me think. Next, you're going to ask me to think about dates and years and math. Bill de Blasio, who's considering the removal of a 76-year-old statue of Columbus. And then later in the broadcast. The mayor of New York City establishing a commission to look at taking down Christopher Columbus. And I mean, you have to think, well, what is it that Christopher Columbus? I mean, that thing has been there since 1892, by the way, I would add. That's when they put it up in New York City. What did he do? He probably did math better than you did, you know, to find the new world. Well, the answer is Columbus subjugated indigenous people. He was horrifically cruel. He helped found the slave trade, but also indirectly helped found America. This is the epitome of the phrase complicated history. Lee and Jeb Stewart, not nearly as complicated. Those guys were treasonous. And while I don't think every statue or bust of every Confederate should be erased, how about this? Let's start with the ones that were erected as angry intimidation techniques during the 1960s. Those ones could go. And the rest, maybe put a few in museums. Uh, You could give them some context, but not on pedestals. I'm really concerned. You know the phrase, he put her on a pedestal or to be put on a pedestal? I mean, when you're putting Civil War commanders on pedestals, You have to look up to them, right? Figuratively, literally. So it's okay that the city of New Orleans doesn't have to literally look up to Confederate commanders anymore. But Columbus, again, horrible guy. Also, clear product of his time. Let's take that into account. People saw others as just dangerous potential killers. They were. I mean, it would have been right for the indigenous people to look at Columbus that way. 
They saw people as means of profit, sources of danger. They acted accordingly. Columbus was successful. He was also horrible. Given the time, his horribleness clearly correlated with his success. It was a remorseless age. You know, Slate doesn't celebrate Columbus Day anymore. It celebrates Indigenous Peoples Day. You know when we celebrate that, right? Yeah, on Columbus Day. So I think Columbus is a tough one. He's been up there since 1892. That is, by the way, 115 years. Columbus Circle, that's a landmark. And Italian-Americans, of which I am one, revere him. I am also a Jew. I have a real stake in both these fights. Just a real, real compelling stake. I'll decide it for you if you ask. But if not, I would say, Grant can definitely stay. And let's let Columbus stay. But put up a plaque discussing his misdeeds. It can really be a teachable moment. Oh, yeah, I hate the phrase, but sometimes it really works. If nothing else, you can accurately list the dates, and that could be a learning moment for certain Fox News hosts who, according to their bios, went to Columbia University. Trish Reagan went to Columbia University. Did she not know that Columbia University started as King's College in 1754 and then changed to honor Columbus Columbia, the phrase for the new world, taken from Columbus, changed the name to Columbia in 1784. In other words, almost 43 years ago. And that's it for today's show. The first letters of the first and last names of just producer Mary Wilson and Dan Schrader, and also executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, when mashed together and rearranged, spell out the word salad swam, provided we hire a producer with initials AAA. We had help today from Alphonse Aloysius Antonelli, the gist. You'll find that the 18th word of all the sentences of this show spell out the lyrics to the Pina Colada song. There is no escape. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.